So we were the middle, middle, actual middle. In chapter 12, what is chapter 12 about? Anyone remember? It's been so long we forgot. The intermediate man. There's a very descriptive term, right? Because I don't like saying intermediate man, I'm going to just stick with the Hebrew Benini. Um, in general, I have a philosophy in life that terms which are of a technical nature, it's just better to learn what they mean. Um, do you know what the filling are? Phylacteries. Right? If you didn't know what filling were and someone said phylacteries, would now you know what they were? No. <laughs> Might as well have been Is that Greek or something? It is Greek. Okay. Do you know what you do if the filler are broken? You find a flactory worker to fix them. Okay. Fine. It wasn't that funny. Okay. So. <laughs> So the Bainini is in between, we said in between the Russia, the wicked person, and the Tzaddik, the righteous person. So we first differentiated at the beginning of the chapter the Bainini from the Russia, which is that a Russia, a wicked person, is somebody whose animal soul has control over their life. And how is that manifest? How can you tell if your animal soul has control over your life? If you sin. How often? Any. Any. Fact, right? And really, if you think about it, even if you don't sin, but you would sin, you just haven't gotten around to it yet? No, it's not the sin that makes the person a Russia. The sin is symptomatic of being a Russia. And on the other hand, we have the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik is a person whose godly soul has completely subdued the animal soul. And that would mean that such a person feels no desires or attachments to anything ungodly. And the Bainini is somewhere in between those two. Right, so the Bainini never sins, ever. Right. His whole life is a Bainini. What? His whole life. In his whole life is a Bainini, right. In his whole life is a Bainini, right. So he's not an intermediary man, he's an intermediary soul. No. Well... Can I point out just an important thing about Hebrew grammar, which is important? Hebrew has a lot of words, which are nouns, that when you translate them into English become adjectives, which is very annoying. For instance, there's a Hebrew word, chacham. Does anyone know the translation of the word chacham? Wise one. Wise person. Right? You have to add that one or person, right? It makes it a little bit um, annoying and confusing, okay? Um... The word baini does not mean intermediate man. It's a noun. But um, there, I don't, is there like a noun for just in between? In be, something, that, something which is in between, right? So they add these words like person or man or thing, right? Which, which we, what was it? Ah, yesterday, someone asked me a question in Tanya, and I didn't understand the question. I looked in the Hebrew. Their entire question was because in the translation they had added the word. Um, I think they added the word world, which, isn't, wasn't, which wasn't there. Because it just said tachtonim, which means lower 
entities, lower beings, and they translated it as lower worlds, and then they based on the fact that it said worlds, they had this whole f- complex philosophical question, like, but the Hebrew doesn't actually say that. So you have to be careful with this kind of stuff, that um, translations have to make sense of the language you translate into, and if something it can be said in one way in one language and not in another language, you have to, so you end up having to say things like intermediate man or intermediate person. In what sense is a Bainini intermediate we're going to get to? It's not that their soul is intermediate. I might as well tell you now. It's the relationship between the souls, right? In other words, that the godly soul and the animal soul, it's not the case that the godly soul has conquered the animal soul. It's not the case the animal soul has defeated the godly soul, but rather it's somewhere in between those two things. So it's not that the level of the person's soul is intermediate. After all, a uh, person who is a Russia could become a Bainini. It doesn't require a change in their soul level, but it has to do with the relationship of the souls. We'll, we'll come back to that later. Okay. Um, then we started speaking about the Bainini during prayer. And that during prayer, the godly soul has undisputed sovereignty over the person. Right? As we spoke, that in this sense, prayer does not mean just the act of saying the words of the sitter. Um, it doesn't even think about what they mean. Rather, it's a time of deep reflection and contemplation, the greatness of Hashem, such that brings a person to a feeling of love of Hashem, which we spent, I think, about two and a half, cl- two classes on, something like that. Um, that's where, and that desire to be close to Hashem translates into a um, desire to do mitzvahs because, and this is not something we explained in this chapter, I'm just going to leave it unexplained. The only way to truly be attached and connected to Hashem is through mitzvahs, which is again a subject in its own right. But given that, if a person has, undergoes this kind of prayer, they enter a state where the only thing that they want, the only thing they desire is to be attached to Hashem through mitzvahs. And at that point, it would be very hard to differentiate the person um, from a tzaddik, from someone whose animal soul has been conquered, but as we're going to see that this is not, the person has not become a tzaddik, this is a temporary state that's due to their pondering, their meditation, their reflection. It's not an actual um, ongoing state of mind. Okay, but before we get to that, um, there's a little discussion about prayer. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So we are in the right-hand column on page 47. The line starts with out of love. Next sentence. This is the essential aspect of the Shema, the recital of which is enjoined by the Torah, and the blessings which precede it and follow it, which are rabbinic enactment, the latter being preparation for the fulfillment of the recital of the Shema as explained elsewhere. So... The if you were to, if you were to take a a sitter and you start to run through the, the different prayers, what you'll start to realize is that um, many different things are being put together. So there is the mitzvah to recite the Shema every day. In addition, there are the blessings of the Shema, which, are, which he mentions here. There's the Amidah, the Shema Nesra, where we ask Hashem for our needs. There's Pesukah um, de Zimra saying psalms. There's all these different things. Um, and they're all put together. 
And one of the questions that's asked, which is not so much a, a, a question in halacha, but a question more in, in um, philosophy, what is the main part of the prayer service? What is it all about? Um, and there's two kinds of competing ways of looking at it. One way is to say the main part of prayer is the Shemur Esrei, where we stand before Hashem beseech Him for our needs. And the other idea is to say the main part of prayer is the Shema. Okay, now, when I say the main part of prayer, I don't mean to get into question of like what's more important if you don't have time to do both, what should you do? I mean, if a person wants to take the the structure the sitter is put, sets forth, right, starting with the morning blessings through all the way through the entire morning prayers to the end, what is one trying to achieve? Is one trying to achieve a state where they can genuinely ask Hashem for their needs, or is one trying to get to a state where the recital of the Shema, mentioning that Hashem is one and that we should love Him, that that is... Um, done with full sincerity. And you can, just one second, you can think of either of those things as the main point, and in which case the Shema or the Shema Nasser would end up becoming uh, secondary to the primary thing. So if you said the primary thing is in order to ask Hashem for your needs, then the Shema would be seen as another step in the preparation for the Shema Nasser. You get up, you say the morning blessings, they're singing some psalms, the blessings around the Shema, the Shema, all that is preparation leading to the Shema Nasser where we ask Hashem for our needs. But you could also look at it differently. You could say that the main thing is actually the Shema the main thing is the recital of the Shema, and the Shema Nasser is simply a follow-through as a consequence of that. In other words, the, the, the manifestation of a proper recital of Shema ultimately translates into um, standing before Hashem and asking for your needs. But... but the, the goal of prayer has, so to speak, been achieved through the recital of the Shema. These are two different ways that you'll find, um, if you look in Hasidic literature and other, and other kinds of works, as to how to view what's the main focus of the prayers. If, if someone says, <coughs> that, that period says that Shema is the main focus of the prayer, then what's, what's the logic behind that? I'm going to explain both. I just first want you to know that there are these two ways of approaching. Can you just say that Shemunasra is the reason people would think is because it's asking for your needs? Yeah, but so why? what's the reason behind? You just said one. Well, that's what Shemunasra is, but the question is what's the main point of prayer? Well, let me, I haven't explained anything. I'm just giving you that there's two different ways that you can look at it. And I, I didn't explain either. Okay. Okay. The Shemunasra the is, is, I mean, if you just read the text, it's requesting your needs. And Shema is declaring that Hashem is one, that we should love him, we should serve him, right? So what's the main point? Okay. Now, before I explain the, the, the two different things, I, I want to talk about the idea of, of prayer more generally. The main goal of prayer is to develop a deeper connection to Hashem. That's the main goal of prayer. Which means, if a person is asking Hashem for their needs as a means to get the stuff that they need, are they really doing the act of prayer properly? In other words, I, don't know, I want a car. And so I ask Hashem, give me a car. And the reason why I'm asking Hashem is 
because I really want the car and I know that only he can ultimately provide, so I ask him. But I have no interest in being closer to Hashem. I only have an interest for the car. I just happen to be aware that he and he alone can provide the car. Am I performing the, the service of prayer properly? I'm not getting to halachically away from my obligation and I'm talking to legalities, but in terms of the, the spirit of it, no. On the contrary, we know that our sages tell us that the reason, one of the reasons why our forefathers were often childless was because Hashem wanted them to pray. In other words, that prayer is so to speak, the, the, something that's, that's valuable in and of itself. Um, and so the idea of requesting for your needs is a way of coming closer to Hashem rather than simply a means to get what you need. Which means, in this way of thinking, if you pray for what you need and the answer is no, was the prayer successful? If the praying brought you closer to Hashem, regardless of the answer, it was a successful prayer. So to just give an analogy, um, often, not always, but often asking requires a person to be vulnerable with the person they are asking. You have to be open that you actually need this thing. You have to be open that you can't provide it. You have to be right, entrusting of them, right? So that vulnerability is itself a valuable thing in certain relationships. The more intimate, the closer relationship, being able to be vulnerable about what you need with someone else is itself something that brings you together, regardless of whether or not they end up saying yes or no. Okay. So there is an idea of saying that the main goal of prayer is to stand in front of Hashem and honestly, in a state of real vulnerability, be open with Hashem of what you need. And that act itself brings a person closer to Hashem. That's one way of looking at what prayer is all about. However, in order that that should be genuine and sincere, you don't just start talking about your needs. You actually have a lot of preparation where there's a lot of reflection about who you're going to be speaking to, starting with the morning blessings and the Psalms that we say, and then the recital of the Shema. All these things are providing us with context so that when we ask Hashem for our needs, there's a genuine awareness of who He is, who we're asking, and so that, 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 that connection is more genuine. So in that sense, the entire prayer is building up to the Shemona Esrei. That's one way of looking at prayer. The other way of looking at prayer is... About, is more about changing. The goal is to change ourselves that we should recognize who Hashem is and His importance in our lives. And if that's the focus, then Shema would be the main point. Because Shema is the time when we speak about Hashem being one, we speak about the commandment to love Him, we speak about doing His mitzvahs. So if prayer is about achieving a, 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 an awareness of the centrality of Hashem in our lives, then Shemona Esrei would not be the main point. Shemona Esrei would be just a consequence of that. In other words, and I'll come back to that in a second, but the main point is actually just the thing that I, that's really important to me or should be really important to me is Hashem. Um, I'm supposed to come to realize that. I love Him. I want to be with Him. And that is going to happen through the Torah and mitzvahs that I perform. Is that the same thing? No. No. 
the difference is, the difference is, where am I, where am I putting the focus? If I'm putting, in the Shmonasra, I'm putting the focus on, I have all of these needs, I have all these issues, I have these, these things that I have, and I'm trying to use those things as a channel um, to create more closeness with Hashem. So go back, think about the forefathers, right? The idea is that the, 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 the patriarchs and matriarchs, they didn't have children, and the fact that they didn't have children, that, and forced is probably the wrong word, but we'll use that word, forced them to turn to God. So, my relationship with Hashem is being prompted by and is through, through the lens of my human needs. Whereas, if you focus on the Shema, it's reverse. It's, it's about raising oneself up out of their mundane human needs and saying that I would actually need is to be with God, to be with Hashem through the mitzvahs. So, a closer connection, but the flavor of that connection is very different. Okay, um, I'm going to. If I had to use an analogy, I would say like this: If you say that the main focus is the Shemona Esrei, then you're relating to Hashem um, much more like a parent. Or I would use the analogy of king, but I don't want to go there because that gets all very awkward for us in the modern world who don't have any you know, real sensitivity to the idea of king. So we're just going to go with parent, even though maybe king would be better. Right? Um, but this, this notion that, that I have needs and through being open with Hashem about my needs, I'm able to come closer to Him. In the Shema, that's not what's happening. In the Shema, it's, 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 there's a transcending of yourself. There's a leaving of yourself behind and saying, really what matters is not all of the mundane human things. What really what matters is him. He's one. He, is the, he, is, he alone is truly important. V'ahavta, and you should love him. B'chol with all of your heart. B'chol nafcha, with all of your soul. B'chol meidecha, which means with all of your alat. Which means that you should love him instead of loving the pleasant things in life, that's with all your heart. You should love him even if, they cause, even if it requires you to die for him. And you should love him that you're willing to spend your money on him. And, or another explanation is that you love him regardless of how positive or negative life experiences that he throws at you are. So the love of Hashem is taking oneself out of their mundane human needs and, and, and transforming the focus to how do I achieve true unity with Hashem, which ultimately is then manifest, as we're going to say, through the mitzvahs. So, in, if I would put it very, very simply, Shema is how do I enter, so to speak, into Hashem's realm, where Shema is about bringing Hashem into my realm. They're very different flavors of prayer. And you could look at it that I have to say Shema in order to, that I'm not approaching Hashem with my needs in a kind of selfish way. So the Shema is a preparation for the Shema Nasser. But I could also look at it the reverse. 
And I could say that the Shemona Asri, asking for my needs, is just the natural consequence of once I've devoted my life to Hashem, I now ask Him to provide me the things that will enable me to do the mitzvahs, to be close to Him. So, is the Shemona Asri the consequence of the Shema? Or, which would be the second approach, or is the Shema just a preparation for the Shmonestra? You could look at it differently, and that kind of, the question is, what, what do we mean being closer to Hashem? Do we mean raising myself out of the regular mundane human existence to be truly devoted to Hashem in a godly way on, a God, on God's terms, the Shema? Or do I mean trying to draw Hashem into my life, that my human life is full of close, intimate encounters with Hashem caring for me at every opportunity? Those are two very different flavors, two very different experiences of closeness with Hashem. They both count as prayer. And so when we're not talking about the halachic obligations, we're, we're looking at this structure that the sages put together the sitter, is an interesting question, like what is the focus? What is the main goal? Which of those two things? Now if you look in the text, which take here in chapter 12 of Tanya does the Alter Rebbe seem to focus on? What's the main point of prayer? Just to clarify the... Um... Yeah. Bringing self into Hashem's world, that's the Shema. Right. Yeah. That makes sense? Why, yeah, why yeah. it be that way? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Right. And, and that's the approach he takes here. Right? So he speaks about times of Shema and times of the, the time of the Shema and the Amidah, but when he goes on to like elaborate a little more specifically, you'll notice he just mentions the Shema, and the blessings before and afterwards. He doesn't really, he almost drops out the Amidah, the, the requesting of our needs. So this is, a, this, the way prayer is being described here is a very different notion of prayer, not just in terms of the idea that we spoke previously about the, you know, the contemplating and meditating, that kind of stuff, but it's also different in terms of kind of what the, what, what, what the focus is. So, um, Why would it make sense that the prayer that he's describing here is a prayer which focuses on the Shema rather than the prayer that focuses on the Shema Nasser, in the context here? Could you say that again? Why in the context of this chapter is the way he's framing prayer focusing on the Shema specifically rather than on the Shema Nasser? Because the daily davening is him using his brain to get into... To recognize the greatness of Hashem. And, and that, is what, that is what causes his godly soul to become what? Life love, love for Hashem. Right, to the point that he only at that point is experiencing things from the perspective of the godly soul. If a person who's not a tzaddik, if a person who's not a tzaddik approaches prayer primarily as a... As a through the lens of focusing on the Shemun of I'm going to use my needs as a conduit to try and get closer to Hashem by being open about them, me asking them, is that going to bring them to a state where their animal soul um, has um, subsided and all their feelings is their godly soul? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I don't, I don't want to be, it's just, it doesn't achieve that. In fact, you could argue that in a certain sense, maybe that's a more powerful thing to do because it creates a more attainable sense of connection to Hashem. I mean, if I really feel like I'm a, as a human being with an animal soul who has selfish concerns, right, that I have problems, 
And I recognize that in order to solve my problems, I have to turn to Hashem. And I recognize that turning to Hashem has to be done in a genuine and honest way. And that ultimately, using that opportunity to try and become closer to Hashem, even if he's going to say no, that's, that's a very powerful thing. But it doesn't bring a person really to the state where their attachment to anything other than Hashem has fallen away. Right? That sense that the only thing that's sovereign in the person is the godly soul doesn't really happen for a person when they pray in that way. So in the, and this is what I want you to understand. In the context of what he's describing here, prayer is formed framed this way. If we were to speak about prayer in a different context, for instance, if we were to speak about how prayer helps elevate our lives, right, the, 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 the mundaneness and the physicalness of our lives, then probably the Shemona Esrei, the focusing on Shemona Esrei is the central idea of prayer, probably is, makes more sense in that context. And this is an important thing in Chassidus, that very often Chassidus will give a different explanation of something because the context of what it's describing requires a different way of framing, a different way of looking at it. And this seems to appease people off because it's, people will suddenly think that, that, that there's, there's somehow like a, a contradiction. If you think of it in the dynamics of, of, a, of a real relationship, a lived experience, so if I'm trying to describe a certain mode, a certain way of relating, then I would understand what I'm doing when I'm, say, using my sitter very differently than if I'm relating in another mode, right? So you have a person and their goal is they want to achieve a state where the only thing they're experiencing internally is the sense of connection with Hashem that comes from the godly soul, that that alone has soul sovereignty over their inner life. The kind of prayer that, 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 that leads to that, that achieves that, is the kind of prayer which places the central focus on pondering the true greatness of Hashem, coming to love Him and Him alone, and seeking nothing else other than to be attached to Him through mitzvahs. But someone, who's, someone who feels that say, Hashem is very detached from their life as a human being, right? right? They want to, so to speak, bridge that gap, maybe with the focus then entirely on the other kind of prayer, right? To realize that all of my issues and all of my problems are themselves actually vessels, they're opportunities to turn to Hashem with more sincerity, more honesty. Which one is the right way to pray? Which one is the right way to approach the sitter? They're both, right? It just depends on what, you know, who the person is, what we're talking about. Here we're talking about this Baini who's trying to achieve this kind of clarity about the, his godly soul and experience, at least for a temporary period of time, life in, from that perspective. The, the prayer has to be understood as being centered around the Shema, which is contemplating the greatness of Hashem, which leads to, which leads to a desire to be with Him, which is manifest through, exclusively through the performance of mitzvahs. And that's the theme of the Shema. Questions? Yeah. How do you put in, how is the connection there that the Shema we do tells us to do all the mitzvahs? It's in the Shema. If you open the Shema and read it, it's right there. Oh, okay. I, it's well, actually in the words. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess Shema. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the entire three paragraphs of the Shema are about the unity of Hashem, loving Hashem and doing the mitzvahs. That's the... Okay. okay. Now, 
He adds here this idea of the blessings of the Shema. So the blessings of the Shema are actually a very odd thing. Um, if, if you look in a sitter, the blessings of the Shema, and I'll, I'll focus specifically on the morning. The morning um, there's also in the matter of the evening prayers, but I'm just going to do the morning for right now. There are three blessings. There's two blessings before the Shema and one blessing after the Shema. And these are called the blessings of the Shema. And if you look, they don't actually seem to talk about the Shema. Generally, when we have blessings, we have blessings that pertain to the mitzvah. So before one, like Shabbos can make a blessing on lighting Shabbos candles, right? Um, these blessings are not that you're blessing Hashem for the commandment to recite the Shema or anything like that. The first blessing speaks about the wonder of the heavenly bodies and the angels. It speaks about the heaven, the sun, the moon. Um, Hashem's governance of the world through that, the creation of those things, and, and how the angels worship Hashem. Which doesn't seem to have much to do with the Shema. The second blessing is asking for Hashem to have mercy on us um, and to show His love to us. And the third blessing is showing gratitude to Hashem for taking us out of Egypt and giving us the Torah. Nothing of these really seem to have anything to do with the Shema on the surface. And so the question is like, why are they actually called the blessings of the Shema? And the Alter Rebbe is saying, says here is that the, what these two, the, 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 the blessings are actually there in order to prepare for the Shema. And then he uses this word fulfillment. Um, in the Hebrew, he, the, the word for the fulfillment is kiyum. So kiyum is an interesting word. Kiyum can mean fulfill in the sense you have an obligation and you fulfilled your obligation. But kiyum also means something that it is sustained, it persists. Um, so if you have, if, 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 if you have um, uh, a project or a building or a company or whatever it is, what's very important, one of the things that's very important to you is that it has kiyum. Kiyum means that when you come back tomorrow, it'll still be there. When you come back a year from now, it'll still be there, right? Um, there's a very famous expression, I'm sure some of us have heard. David Melch Yisrael, David, king of Israel. Chai is alive. V'kayim. What does v'kayim mean? Forever. Kayim means that he's still around. He's right. So you ask the question, what's the difference in being alive and, 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 and still being around? It's a topic for another time. But this word kiyom means that something lasts. So the idea is like this. The Shema can be a lasting Shema or not a lasting Shema. So what is the Shema? We said the Shema is that one's recognition of the greatness of Hashem affects them with a desire that they will seek to be close to Him, which can only be achieved through the performance of mitzvahs, right? So what would it mean that the Shema lasts? It means after you close the sitter and you walk away, still what's important to you? Being close to Hashem the mitzvahs. And so the sages added blessings to make the recital of the Shema more effective, to prepare us and to, so to speak, process that. So if you think about the blessings beforehand, the first blessing speaks about um, the amazingness of Hashem, how Hashem creates the heavenly bodies and, and He does that in a way that it's, it's effortless for Him and how much the angels are, are enthralled with Hashem. And what that's supposed to do is that's supposed to take a person out of a focus on themselves and their needs and their issues. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to give you an analogy. Have you ever had the experience where someone has a question and they desperately want to know the answer, but because they desperately want to know the answer, when you tell them the answer, they don't actually hear the answer because they're too busy wanting the answer to their question that the only thing in their mind is how they don't understand their question that bothers them. There's no space in their mind for the new information to enter. So that first blessing is about creating that space inside ourselves that we're kind of, so to speak, more enchanted with God than we're preoccupied with our own preconceived notions about Him. Okay? Wow. We're more enchanted with God than being... Pre- what? Which part? That where, what, where... The idea of the blessing, the first blessing, yeah. is supposed to create that empty space in ourselves. The empty space is not created by like trying to get rid of your ego. The empty space is um, realizing and reflecting upon how um, mind-blowing, mind-boggling Hashem truly is. Right? That, you know, reflecting on Hashem's creation of the entire cosmos and how the angels, which are beings that, 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 are, that are entirely spiritual, are completely flabbergasted by the greatness of Hashem and totally devoted to him. All of that, all of those themes are supposed to, if a person takes them seriously and reflects them, to get to a person where they've, so to speak, forgotten about themselves and become totally enthralled with the notion of God. And that is to kind of create the space inside of themselves that when they recite the Shema, it's going, and they reflect on the unity of Hashem and how they should love Him, and that is going to affect them in a very profound way and bring out that godly sense that the godly soul has to be able to really appreciate these things. On the other hand, if a person doesn't do that, they still keep trying to fit Hashem into the human framework. Let me explain to you what I mean in the human framework. Um, What are some things that we associate with God, not like in a classroom setting, but in life. You're, you're living life, yeah? When is God relevant? When do you turn to God? When do you think about God? What kind of... Something purpose. Purpose, good. Something really good or really bad. Good, okay. Do you notice that those three things all place the center on your existence, mm-hmm. the role God plays in your existence. Mm-hmm. So God is having to um, play a role. He has to be the provider of purpose, mm-hmm. the organizer of good events, the provider of salvation from tragedy, etc., etc., etc. Right? The idea is that the angels are beings that they get the fact that they, that's not God. That God creating all of the cosmos and everything else that for God, He's beyond that. That that's, um, as, as they say, God is holy, God is removed, God is beyond that. And that as much as you see God's influence in the world, you're not really seeing him at all because he's so far beyond it. He's so, so, and to stop thinking of him in the terms and in the role that he plays in our lives, but realizing that he's, he's, he's in a league all of his own. And to approach with that kind of openness and bewilderment and wonderment, mm-hmm. that creates the space for the recital of the Shema to be deeply effective. 
But when a person is approaching the Shema, but they're still stuck in what Hashem does for me, what the role Hashem plays in my life, the recital of the Shema is not going to have that same power. Because again, the idea of focus of the Shema is that you're entering his space, not trying to bring him down into yours. Yeah. So would this be the thinking of myself, ourselves, or would this be in between? Like if we think of something like that Hashem did, like say for me, mm-hmm. but that's astounding, and it leads me or a person to be astounded by Hashem, it happened to happen to a person, but that leads to like, oh my gosh, how could this being be so powerful? Right. Would that be right. the selfish one, the self-oriented one, or the... Well, no, that's actually an important. That's actually why we first talk about, even before the blessings of Shema, when the Psalms that we say, we speak about how Hashem, the wonders in creation and the providence that Hashem has shown the Jewish people. So you have a starting point, right? It's hard to work off of something totally abstract. But, but as you put it, the, 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 do you move from what he did for me to the fact that he can do it yeah. to the fact that for him doing it, it's not a big deal? Okay. Um, a, yeah, can you hand me the sitter? So one of the things just that we say in the blessings of the Shema, this first blessing, um, we say, um, we say that the angels, um, that they give, sing all these praises to Hashem, why? Because he alone is exalted and holy. What does that mean, he alone is exalted and holy? That everything you see, everything you appreciate of Hashem, that, that really, that's, that, that's not even the tip of the iceberg. That's infinitesimal. We go on to say that he's the master of wonders. Now, what does it mean to be a master of something? You're above it, right? right. You can, right? So for you, it's like, wow, God does this amazing thing. Like, Hashem's like, yeah, that, that's not a big deal. That's like, you know, Tuesday, two o'clock, easy thing to do, not a big deal. And, and that's the theme here, is that, the, the, that as, as amazing and as wondering as Hashem is, for him, that's small and trifling and insignificant. And so there's this sense of bewilderment and there's a sense of awe and there's a sense of wonder and this sense of being um, enchanted with, with, with Hashem that, that kind of takes you out of yourself. You kind of think of an example, this is on a very low level because this has to do with the natural world, but it's a similar type of phenomenon. If you see a natural wonder, right, and you allow yourself to like absorb the, 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 the wondrousness of it, it takes you out of like... Be- the fact that you have your life and you have your needs and you have your things, it just, that melts away a little bit. Okay? And so this first blessing is to create that space that Hashem really is, so to speak, on the other side of the horizon. And then, the next blessing, we ask Hashem to have mercy on us, to love us, to kind of shepherd us into that space, right? That we're His children, that we, he, should, he should give us the ability to love him, the ability to know him, the ability to serve him. Once we've kind of realized how, how true the gap is between us and him, right, it seems kind of, kind of almost arrogant. It seems foolish that you're going to now contemplate his true greatness. 
And so there's a blessing where we ask Hashem for the help and the, the inspiration and the encouragement and the ability to actually engage in the Shema. So the first blessing is we're creating the space of realizing how far beyond Hashem really is. And the second blessing is, is actually request, asking Hashem to shepherd us into the Shema, that we're able to say it, we're able to reflect on His unity, we're able to bring out our own godly sense and connect it to the mitzvahs in a genuine way, given how truly far beyond He is. And then after reciting the Shema, we say a blessing, and gratitude for how He took us out of Egypt and gave us hope that He actually is going to be there with us to turn this into a, a lived reality. And so these blessings, they serve to frame the Shema it's not that, it's, it's not, there's not focusing on the, 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 there's a mitzvah to say Shema, I have to make a blessing before it. But these blessings are there so that at the end of the day, the saying of the Shema is something that has a cue, it has a lasting influence on the person after they close the sitter, after they go to work, after, right, that they're still left with that sense. What's important to me is to be connected to Hashem. And the way to do that is through mitzvahs. Because they haven't just dived into the Shema, They've, they've brought themselves to a place where they're really aware of the, the, the awesomeness of what they're doing in the Shema and they're realizing how much they need Hashem's help to make that process, to make that um, journey something lasting. So we have one blessing which opens us up to, the, to how far beyond Hashem really is. The second blessing, asking Hashem to help us in loving him, in connecting to him, which in order to help us say the Shema authentically. Then after the Shema, another blessing acknowledging how Hashem in our past has actually been there for us, taken us out of Egypt, given us the Torah, and been there to, to make sure that this doesn't all just disappear. And then to see that you know, play out as a person leaves their morning prayers and goes into whatever they do in life, that that sense that what's important to me is to be connected to him, and that happens through the mitzvah. So in this context, the way you would read the bless that blessing is how Hashem um, how Hashem now what it, how Hashem gives us the ability to relate to him and to be connected to him even when we're in our world. In other words, that connecting to him on his terms is something that lasts and, 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 and continues even once we close the sitter and leave the show. But it's not really, if you look at it, it's not really speaking about, at least not explicitly, you could read it into it, but it's not really speaking about that, for instance, that we're thanking Hashem that he provides us with food to eat or children or things like that. It's that he took us out of Egypt, made us his people, gave us the Torah, right? In other words, that he's, he's us being connected to him on his level is something that we can we continue with even as we go through, through life. So it's, it's, it's instead of entering that space of being focusing entirely on him as a escape from reality, it continues into the reality in which we live. But that's very different than say the Shemun where we're asking Hashem for, um, we're asking Hashem for peace, we're asking Hashem for sustenance, we're asking Hashem for, for all sorts of other things that we need as human beings. That's not really the focus of that blessing. and asking for help and 
No, that's the structure of if you're gonna the Shemona Esrei when you when you're focusing on asking Shem for your needs, the proper structure to do it is first to praise and then ask and then show gratitude. This is something else entirely. This is coming to that kind of personal transformation that I am I, I belong to Hashem. My what it, what matters to me ultimately solely is just being connected to Him. But how do I prepare myself to 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 say the Shemona in a way that's going to really lead to that kind of a transformative experience and a blessing that's going to allow me to hold on to the takeaway from that experience that, that what really matters is connecting to, to the Torah mitzvahs. These blessings are around that. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's what you'll notice that he, he kind of just drops off on the Shemona Esrei. The Shemona Esrei is almost at that point an afterthought. It's like, and, and obviously you can ask Hashem for the stuff that you need in order to be able to connect to him to Torah mitzvahs. But it's, it's almost not, it's almost incidental in this way of approaching prayer. Um, th- there were many, many, many chassidim who, if you were to look at their prayers, um, by the time they got to Shemona Esther, they would just, it would be very fast. Hmm. Um, and and one, of the, one, of the, one of the reasons is because the, the, the prayer was very much centered around this type of transformative thing. And at that point, it wasn't building up to the Shemona Esther, it was building up to the Shema. And the real kind of processing and takeaway of the Shema, which is in the, the blessing after the Shema about how Hashem's redeemed us from Egypt and given us this Torah. And like at that point, they're basically on, a, on, a, on an emotional level, they're done. Now, obviously, they, they need things throughout the day and they ask Hashem, but, but they're not, that's not, that's not that, wasn't, that, right, that wasn't the theme of, the, of that prayer. And that, what? I thought Shema is supposed to be the highest That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. There's different ways of looking at prayer. Well, because we were learning, remember Sarah, right? we were learning this morning, we have this like mm-hmm. little scan of a book. We don't actually know what book it is because I don't think we have the cover. Um, it was but, hanging around over here at one point a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, but yes. it's got like this list of kind of right. like the different like, important parts of prayer and we were like talking about how like... Right, so this is very important. Is that what I'm describing now is not, is not talking about the halakhic. You have to, in Judaism, there are many layers. So there's the halakhic level, which is what are you required to do? What takes priority over what? With women, this is very, very important because the halakhic, the, the, the amount of flexibility and what's halakhic required of them to pray is more dynamic than men, right? So you I'm not, I'm talking about that. I'm talking about, for, assume prayer was optional, right? Forget whether it's required or not required. As a exercise in coming closer to Hashem, is the prayer centering around the transformative experience of the Shema, or is the prayer centering around the sense of vulnerability in Shema Nasra? And both are legitimate, but they're very different, and they have, each one has their advantages and disadvantages. In the context of a person trying to achieve a, 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 a sense that all that matters to me in my life is God, a Shema-centered prayer is the effective approach. And that's why that's what's mentioned here. And if you look, he, 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 he says it's during the time, this happens during the time of the Shema and the Shema Nesrei, but then when he, he describes like what you're doing, he just focuses on the Shema and its blessings. The, the, the Shema Nesrei gets dropped out because it's almost there as a technicality, an important technicality. What is almost there as a technicality? The Shema Nesrei. Okay. In other words, once a person, if the whole thing is to come to a sense that the only thing that's important to me is, is my connection with Hashem, which can only be achieved through doing mitzvahs. And I know that Hashem has given me those mitzvahs and they're going to be with me all the time, which is that last blessing. Obviously, I, 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 you know, I, I, need, I need the money and the health and the, and, the, and the presence of mind to be able to do those mitzvahs, right? So I ask Hashem for those things, but those are, 
those are not, that isn't where the heart and the soul of the prayer is at that point. But again, there's a totally different kind of prayer where you're trying to try and bridge the gap between my mundane human existence and my closeness with Hashem and realizing that the trials and tribulations and issues in my life are themselves a means to find closer connection to Hashem by turning to Him and asking for help. And that kind of prayer, Shema just becomes a preparatory step that I have more honesty of who I'm turning to, but the focus is the Shema Esrei. Now, that's a more common way of describing prayer, but that's not always describing it here. And the reason is because it's a, it, the, the, what the person is trying to achieve through the, through the sitter is a totally different is a totally different thing. That it, it's not a, now. If you go to halacha, it's a different thing. Like what comes first, what comes second, what's high priority, less priority. Interestingly, for women, what is a high priority? Shema or shema? Shema. For men. Shema. Shema. Yes, because shema is a biblical requirement for men. Men must say shema. Whereas women. Did not have a requirement to say Shema. Only the requirement to... So, yeah. So there's a discussion whether you have a requirement... Women are required to, to, to ask for their needs. There's a question whether that also entails a requirement to say Shema Nasserai proper or does not. There's di- differing views amongst the halakhic authorities. Men are for sure required to say the Shema Nasserai, but the requirement to say the Shema Nasserai is rabbinic, whereas the requirement to say the Shema is biblical, so... You really want me to answer that? Yes. Okay. So my sense is the opposite. My sense is that the the Shema centered prayer is a more masculine prayer, and the and the Shemesh centered prayer is a more feminine prayer because there's an, a general idea in in um, Kabbalah and Hasidus that the feminine relates to the material world, the masculine relates to spirituality. I know this is counterintuitive because people like women are more spiritual, but whatever. Um, and so the idea is that the male prayer is more focused on leaving behind your identity as a person and becoming totally devoted to Hashem and his mitzvahs, which is the topic of the Shema. Whereas the female prayer is finding how even our mundane lives and all the trials and tribulations and issues that come up in that are themselves a way to connect to Hashem. So, in other words, right? So, so the, 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 where do you, where do you find Hashem? Do you find Hashem in the everyday things in life? So then the, that, that was much more of a Shemona Esrei focused kind of prayer. Or do you find Hashem in um, a devotion to kind of an absolute truth and setting aside all other things? And that's kind of more of the Shema. Love Hashem with all your heart, all your soul. Um, so, it would seem to me that the opposite would be. In other words, that not women are not that women are not required to say Shema because they already have it, but because on the but because that's not really their focus. I mean, I, people say that. I want, you know, um, it, it doesn't say that in Kabbalah. It doesn't say that in Chassidus. There is another idea. There is another idea, which, I, which, I, which, which is... The problem is sometimes we use words to mean different things. There is an idea that women have a more natural sense 
um, of Hashem. That, that is an idea that's discussed. Now, the question is, is that the explanation of why they don't need to recite the Shema? Is a separate question. You see what I'm saying? Like, um, the, I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to say that it is a because at least according to Kabbalah and Chassidus, because I haven't seen anywhere. I've seen the opposite actually, and um, the fact that halachically a woman is highly encouraged, as about highly encouraged as you can be encouraged without actually making a requirement to, to say the Shema, implying that it's not like that that there is something lacking in not saying the Shema. There is a dimension missing. It seems much more of of a question of. What is the, you know, what is the what is the primary focus? Um, now, I think if you go a little bit deeper, one of the ideas that that's that's said um, in Chassidus is that women's notion that serving Hashem and being involved in the human existence as not being contradictory is more intuitive to them. So it's so in other words that if if you set something up that there's God versus we'll use the God versus the world or God versus regular life, right? So then being more God fearing, being more trusting in God, right? Having all of those emotions to God automatically involves a stepping away from life, right? That's how you framed it. But if your sense is that, that um, being connected to Hashem goes hand in hand with life, right? Then, then loving of Hashem and, and, and fearing Hashem don't have that kind of a, a, a self-sacrificing, going beyond yourself type of an element to them. Does anybody see what I'm saying? Like, you, you don't, you're not have to say, I'm going to cut out this in order to have my relationship with Hashem because the relationship with Hashem is found in the regular everyday stuff. Um, and that seems to be how it's understood in, 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 in many statements of our sages and also in many things in the Chassidus and Kabbalah that the, the, kind of the spirituality that women are more innately in tune with or whatever is a different kind of a spirituality than the men's spirituality. It's not that women are innately in tune with a spirituality. Men are lacking, they have to work on it. It's just a different thing altogether. And it's the kind of spirituality that more lends itself to a Shemona Esrei-focused prayer than a Shema-focused prayer. Because it's about you know, being connected to Hashem and having a family. These two things go, go together. They're, 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 they're part and parcel. Whereas... The, 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 there's an, another notion of spirituality which is that a spirituality which requires a person to as we say, right? Like, even if it costs your life, right? You have to give away all your money, right? This kind of devotion towards Hashem and leaving everything else behind and that's, that, that's understood in Kabbalah as kind of a, a, a more masculine kind of spirituality and that would be why men are requ- would be why men are required to do that, and women aren't required to do that. But, but again, the fact that the, that the Torah encourages women also to say Shema indicates that it doesn't break down like strictly saying that women shouldn't do this, right? And also, men are required to do that. Right? So I, I don't. There's a way you can be a little bit sloppy and say like, you know, if if I once heard this. Not from, not from a, 
a Chabad Rebetzin, but it was a very good argument. She said, this idea that women have to do fewer mitzvahs because they're more spiritual. By that logic, the Goyim are more spiritual than non-Jews, and the most spiritual beings of all are monkeys because they have zero mitzvahs. Right? There's something like, it's not that there isn't any truth to the idea, but, but if you overly simplify it, you miss something. The idea is it's a different kind of a spirituality. It's a complementary kind of spiritual, hence the importance of marriage in Judaism, right? Where men and women come together. And, and so therefore, that kind of spirituality does not need those types of things to the same degree. Hence, they're not obligatory or whatever. And that kind of spirituality has a superiority over a male kind of spirituality in certain respects. Hence, whether or not you're Jewish depends on your mother. But it also it has elements in which it's inferior to the, more, the other kind of spirituality which men are more predisposed towards and are obligated towards. Here, this is taking, if we were to gender it, a much more masculine approach to what prayer is, right? It's about leaving your human life behind and becoming totally um, devoted to Hashem and nothing else matters to you, which is not the same thing as saying finding Hashem within the ongoing things in life. In fact, um, at, at a later point in chapter 50, he, he comes back and discusses the kind of the, uh, a love of Hashem, which, which, which is, is so much of a desire to, to be with Hashem in all of his infinite glory that the person cannot find any desire to do mitzvahs even. That the idea of doing a mitzvah becomes, it, 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 it feels unsatisfying because, because you don't, sense the true infinity of Hashem in the mitzvah. And that person actually who's doing the mitzvah is done out of a sense of, of service to Hashem, a sense of loyalty to Hashem, a sense of submission to Hashem rather than out of love. That if you take this notion of loving Hashem absolutely, you get to a point that even the mitzvah can feel unsatisfying because as much as the mitzvah connects you to Hashem, the mitzvah is still manifest in our finite world. And that could come to a point where a person actually needs as, a, as an act of, of, of will to surrender to Hashem's divine purpose and do the mitzvah even though they would really rather escape the finite you know, constraints of their being. That's, if you, it doesn't talk about this here, but if you took this idea of Shema to, to, a, to a certain extreme, you could get to that kind. And the altar says, like, well, he speaks about the, the, why that kind of an experience is very important, but also its limitations. And so it, it's, I think it's just more important to have a sense that you don't put everything on like a hierarchy. Like women are more spiritual, men are less spiritual. It's just the different... I mean, I'm just mentioning it as if there's two, but if you go more into it, there's a lot more than two. Um, uh, so, um, one of the one of the uh, I think that the, the 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 takeaways is that this kind of prayer, and the altar is going to acknowledge it later on, also. It, it's not for everybody and not all the time, right? This is something that while in principle any regular person can do, it is a certain type of a, right? To, 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 it's not just, the, not just the contemplative stuff that we spoke about in the previous classes, but also like what are you really trying to achieve here? You're trying to achieve a sense that the only thing that matters is Hashem in all of His greatness and all of His truth and all of His absoluteness. And I don't seek out anything other than Him and therefore, because the only place I can find them is mitzvahs, the only thing that matters to you is mitzvahs. That's a, that's a very, like, that's what you're trying to achieve in your, in your prayer, is a very interesting kind of a prayer. It's not, I think, what most people would intuitively think of as prayer, which is like, I have issues, and I'm trying to turn to Hashem, 
because I recognize, hopefully, that these issues are an opportunity to strengthen my sense of closeness to Hashem, my openness, my vulnerability. It's a very different notion of prayer. And a person would have to make a decision what type of if they're going to work on prayer, what type of prayer are they working on? And as we get, we're going to see later on in time, he's going to describe other modes, other methods of being a bait. This is kind of like the more classic bait. You know, if you go into the Museum of Bainini, the one that they have the big picture of on the wall is this guy, chapter 12. We'll learn in chapter 13, other kinds of Bainini. Chapter 14, we'll see different flavors of, of this theme. Okay. So not everything in chapter 12 is going to be true of every Bainini, but that's kind of like a starting point. This Bainini has this kind of an experience where the only thing that matters to him is closest to Hashem. He achieves that through the prayer, through the davening, specifically centered around the Shema and its blessings. Yes. No, the, 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 so uh, there's a, because this, the, 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 mitzvahs, I don't want, this is really chapter four. Mitzvahs are not just things that make Hashem, for Hashem, they're also for us. Mitzvahs are ways to be close to Hashem. So if a person comes to a place where they want to be close to Hashem, truly, the only way they can get their need met is through the mitzvah. Um, and that's the type of love he's describing here. He's not at all describing the type of, I love Hashem, I want to make Hashem happy. Um, in other words, it's that through contemplating the greatness of Hashem, the person gets to the point that they feel their godly soul's desire for Hashem, that the only thing that I want is closeness with Hashem. That is not like the, the, the that's not the level, the sense that, the only thing that matters is him and him alone, and my life is there for him. That's not what, it's, I'm, it, it's still all out of my desire to be close to him. It's all, all in the state of, of thirst and yearning and, 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 and passionate desire. It's not like the, like we said about the complete like, the son who's, who's just trying to make their parents happy. And, right? It's not like that. Um, later on, he's gonna come back and speak about how even a baby can have that kind of love to a certain degree or another. But that's not what's being described here. What's being described here is coming to realize the only thing I want is God. And the only place I can find him is in a mitzvah. So then I'm doing the mitzvah for who? What? If the only thing I want is God, the only place I can find him is in a mitzvah, then who am I doing the mitzvah for? Myself. For myself. Not for a selfish self, right? But it's still, yes, it's focused on my godly soul's thirst for Hashem. It's not focused on fulfilling God's ultimate plan and purpose and making God happy. That's not really what it is. Okay. By the way, this is going to be an important thing is that, is that a large part of being a baini is going to be able to be embracing of your own self. We'll see this as a theme. Right? You have to, it's not exclusively this, but you have to want closest to Hashem. You have to want value on my relationship with Hashem. That if it's just mere subservience, that really doesn't get a person to being able to be a baini. They're still going to be on the precipice of sinning all the time. If, if that's the only attitude that they have, is just doing things because God needs me to get it done. Okay. However, oh sorry, uh, we, yeah. at such time, 
the evil that is the left part is subjugated to and nullified in the goodness that is diffused in the right part from the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, the Chabad and the brain, which are bound up into the greatness of the blessed Ain Sof. What this means is that when a person's at that stage, in the recital of Hashem at that point, their mind is totally immersed in awareness of Hashem. The only thing they're feeling is a desire to be close to Him and any sort of other attachment they're not feeling. Now, I just want to point something out. At this state, is a person aware of how much they love Hashem? No. Okay. Uh, just to give you an analogy, have you ever read a really good book? If, if you're reading a really good book, when you're in the middle of the book, do you start having thoughts about how great this book is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the middle of reading the book. Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing that, how deeply are you in the book? Oh, I see. Like you have to come out a little bit. You have to come out a little bit. Right. At this point he's describing is what's happening is that the Chabad, the intellect, the mind is so suffused with an awareness of Hashem. What is the only thing this person is actually aware of? Are they feeling a deep draw and pull towards Hashem? Yes, but they're not, they're not, they're not aware of that, that right? You're, you're so much enjoying the book. You're not, you don't have that, ref, that ability to reflect and be aware of how much you're enjoying it, of how connected you feel. Um, it's only when you come out of it, retrospectively, you're aware of, oh, that was very powerful, that was very intense. Um, if you are if you are working on something that is very important a project and has a deadline yeah and you get into the groove where you're actually working on it right you're not like debating where you're and you're like and it it's got to get done right and you're in that kind of flow state, you're just totally engaged in doing it, right? All of the stress and all the anxiety of how it has to be done right, you're still feeling, right? But in a way that you're feeling it, but you're not, you're not aware that you're feeling it. What are you aware of? How focused you are. You're aware of the task that you're engaged yeah. in, okay? So the, 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 um, the Mitra describes a great length that the feeling being described, the feeling of, 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 of the feeling of love that's experienced in prayer is the kind of feeling that you don't even realize you're feeling it until after you've kind of snapped out of it. Mm. And that, in fact, some great chassidim, and this isn't great, this is not something for everybody, the, the feeling would get so intense it would kind of snap them out of it. Like you ever, like you're reading a good book and it's really, really good and it's really, really good and start, like that, if it's like, that almost pushes you out of the book. So, mm-hmm. so they would have the sense that like, the feeling of desire to be close to Shem becomes more and more and more intense and actually starts preventing them, it starts pushing them out of the state of prayer and they would have to use a tremendous amount of, um, of will to kind of re-engage in the prayer and not get swept up in like, how amazing it is that they had this amazing experience. Um, this is not saying that's relevant for everybody. The reason why I'm bringing this up is again, the idea here is that the, 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 that the animal souls and the animal soul becomes irrelevant because of what the person is mentally experiencing, 
right? They're so engaged and they're so suffused within this sense of the, the, the truth of Hashem, the greatness of Hashem. And that is, that is totally sucking them in. They're not even aware of how much they're engrossed in it. That there's no space in that mental state to feel any kind of attachment, even, even in a way that you're not unaware of it, to anything other than Hashem. And so all that stuff just basically becomes sublimated. It goes to sleep. It, it, it turns off. And when a person walks out of that state, if they were to reflect back on it, they would probably be convinced that they've achieved some sort of like transformative thing in the other a totally different person. Um, however, after prayer, things are going to be different. When the state of sublimity of the intellect of blessed ain't self departs, the evil in the left part reawakens and he begins to feel a desire for lusts of this world and its delights. In other words, the entire state of being is being achieved is because of how engrossed the mind is in with Hashem. The minute that you step out of that, what you discover is nothing's changed. However much a person um, had attachments to ungodly things, unholy things, evil things, prior to the state of prayer, remains the same after the state of prayer. In other words, what you did is you changed channels. You, you changed to a channel. And then when you change back, you're like, he's like, this is garbage. I'm going to watch this other thing. And this other thing is very amazing. And then the program finished. You turn back to the first channel. This garbage is still on. Yeah, because one thing has nothing to do with the other. It's mm. disappointing. It is disappointing. Um, so you're going to have to come have a new way of looking at it so you don't feel disappointed the rest of your life. <laughs> Yeah. What's the new way of looking at it? Chapter 27 and chapter 35. Okay. There's a reason why there's a whole book on this, on this way of living, right? No, that... The, the, um, yeah. At one point, I think it's chapter 13, he says that after prayer, it goes back as if the person had never prayed at all. And so... It's very important to realize that what's happening is that the person is engaging with that particular part of themselves that is able to be aware of something that profound and that true and that meaningful like Hashem. And the other part of themselves, the animal soul, is not really interfering with that on the one hand, but is also not really affected by that on the other hand. And so when the minute that 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 overpowering awareness of Hashem that comes through this kind of contemplative prayer ends, the person should not be shocked at all that all the same kinds of negative character traits and attitudes and feelings start to reemerge. Right? By the way, you can see why this kind of prayer could actually become addictive. Because when you're in this state of prayer, if you can be there, then you can kind of be oblivious to like how much of a you know disgusting human being you might be inside um can a rush yes yes if what the author will say later on just in chapter 17 is that if someone is called a russia beemis a russia in truth and there's some discussion what that term means then they cannot but the fact that he uses that qualifier russia in truth is an indication that that a non-true Russia, right, 
Um, and it, what he basically says is that, that that's a punishment. Is that if a person enters a certain degree of wickedness, then it's a punishment. Um, just not leave you hanging. The most simple explanation of what that means is that there's a kind of being a Russia where we have made peace with the fact that we're a Russia. And once that happens, you can't engage in this kind of prayer without going through a process of tshuva first. But if a person hasn't made peace with that, in other words, they sin and they stumble and they regret, but they haven't come to that kind of acquiescence about it, then this type of prayer should still be available to them, even, even, even though they are not, they're, they're internally kind of a mess. It's, in other words, it's not so much that you have to be a Bainini in order to pray like this, it's that praying like this ultimately would make the person a Bainini, as we see. It's going to be this kind, for the classic Bainini, it's this type of prayer is ultimately going to be the key um, to being a Bainini. And so if you were to become the Bainini, you would have to like, be able to engage this person beforehand. You, you weren't a Bainini. But when a person has a certain complacency, a certain comfortability with sinning, with rejecting Hashem in their life, then Hashem basically creates a barrier that you cannot have this kind of an awareness of Hashem unless you first change your approach, change your attitude, unless you first do tshuva. Um, because there's something um, wrong about somebody who's going to live a life with a complete disregard for Hashem and then decide, you know, now I want to become aware of Hashem in this particular profound way. She was like, no, no, that, that kind of hypocrisy I'm not going to allow. But if, on the other hand, we have our ups and downs and our feelings and we're not perfect, then yes, a person, it, it, it's a craft, it's an art form, it's something a person has to work on. So like, you know, the first time you try doing it, you get very good at it. But there's not an inherent blockage because you're not a baby to be able to pray like this. As long as a person doesn't have that kind of general disregard for Hashem. Yes? Mm-hmm. It's classic. We're going to learn there are other ways. There are other approaches. Okay. Well, I'm just a little bit confused because if, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense, but I'll try and articulate out loud and see if I can find my confusion. Um, if like, going into this kind of like deep prayer and like connection cannot change your animal soul, mm-hmm. then how can it help someone become a baby? That's the rest of the chapter. Okay. Right, we haven't explained how that happens. Okay. What we're going to see is that even though it doesn't affect the animal soul, it does have an effect. It has an effect, but the effect is not... The, we'll get to it. That's the rest okay. of the chapter. Okay. Right. Um, it's, it, it, and that's actually going to be very key, is that for the Bainani, the prayer is not supposed to be an, an, an addictive escape from mm-hmm. their animal soul, but on the contrary, it's supposed to, the purpose of the prayer is the effect after the prayer, state of prayer is left. But that change is not going to change the animal soul. We'll see as we move on in the chapter. But the idea is that the animal soul is going to remain unchanged by this prayer. But the person's relationship with their animal soul will be different because they've experienced this prayer. Can you say that again? The, the animal soul is not going to be changed. But their relationship with the animal soul will be changed. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're off the hook with the dog. They still have to do... They're pretty off the hook once they daven. You read the description, they're pretty off the hook. The problem is how long does the effect of davening last? That's the trick. We're going to get into this effect of davening if it wears... Valtrip has a discourse where he says, yeah, a person davens like this, maybe it lasts half a day. 
Like if you could, like, so there's one of some of these great chassidim, what they would do is they would schedule their lives around davening. So that before the effect of the previous davening had worn off, they engaged in a new act, state of davening. So they were never, they were never, they were always in the middle of davening or after davening. They're never in a state of I haven't yet davened. And so, yeah, really, for such a bainani, in a certain sense, they're pretty much off the hook after, yeah. What do you mean by off the hook? Not sinning is pretty easy for them. Oh, because they've, just because they've, like, manufactured a system in which they're never getting fully out of alignment with that. Right, in other words, the after, we'll go into this, but the after effect of the prayer is, 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 is that powerful okay. that not sinning is really not a big deal. Okay. Um, and so the real struggle of the classic Bainani is not the not sinning, but the maintaining of the davening schedule. Wow. Is the rush of the there's a discussion about that. Um, it doesn't seem like it. What makes the difference? Because a Russia, Russia virale is someone who has zero regret. You can, come to, you, can, you can come to an acceptance of something and still regret it. You can be like, I wish it were different, but I've given up on the expectation that it ever will be different. That's not a Russia virale because you still wish it would be different. You still have the regret. But there is a level of, of embracing and accepting this rejection of Hashem. So if you want to be very lenient, you could say Russia Rale is Russia Ba'emes. But it seems that it probably is, even someone who feels regret could still be Russia Ba'emes. As long as, yeah, as long as you made, as long, like, you know, there's things in life that we wish they were different, we regret them, but like, we're like. So which one's technically? In terms of what's like, like I don't know if you put them in levels. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the way I'm putting Russia of MS is not as bad as the Russia of the Russia of Rale, right. so, but, but I but 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 the question is, at what point does Hashem punish the person and prevent them from being able to experience this kind of prayer? It seems from mm-hmm. from most of the commentaries that I've read, the m- m- the more reasonable explanation would be the kind of person, even if they're not, even if they still feel regret, but they but they but. But they don't feel that regret is not enough to get them to actually do tshuva. Even though they, they stumble again, right? We do tshuva and then stumble. But like they've, they've just like given up. Like it's hard. I wish it were different, but that's the way it is. Like once a person's kind of entered that mindset, even though they're technically not a rush of a rally, they can't, then it seems from my reading of things that they probably would not be able to pray like this because Hashem's going to. It sounds, it sounds like you could also be a rush of a turtle. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's a low-level Rosh Hashanah someone who has regret, but has given up doing anything about it. All is right. Is it giving up, or is it the sort of frustration, like you've hit a wall and you just literally cannot physically get past it? No, because if it's, you've hit a wall, you don't actually hit you a haven't wall. haven't actually accepted yeah, it. Yeah, because remember, remember tshuva, tshuva is the abandonment of sin. You can abandon mm-hmm. sin for the next 20 minutes, right? Right. Like you don't actually hit a wall. You, just, you might feel like you're going in circles, but you don't hit a wall. The giving up is, is it's a deeper oh. kind of like, you don't even try. Like you just like write it off. Or but you still might not, but you still, you still wish it were different, right? You still have those regrets. But you still so. have given up on it ever changing. Yeah. That, that seems to me what he's talking about. But there's room to dispute it. There's not like, there's not one clear tradition that's exactly what he means. All right. We'll hold it here. So tomorrow we're going to continue. We're going to start talking about what, the, what it's like for a person who has had this experience of prayer. How does that leave them? How does that affect them? It doesn't change their animal soul, but again, it's going to change the way they relate to the animal soul.